Well, tonight we're continuing on in our study of this great psalm, Psalm 119. As I've told you many times before in this series, it's the longest psalm, the biggest chapter in the Bible, and its real focus as a, as a big theme is the greatness and the glory of the Word of God. And in its acrostic structure, each one of the sections of eight verses is given over or, or structured around one of the particular letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so the letter of the Hebrew alphabet for this particular section, starting at verse 145 and ending in verse 152, is the uh, Hebrew letter Kof. We begin here, verse 145. I cry out with my whole heart, Hear me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I cry out to you, Save me, and I will keep your testimonies. I rise before the dawning of the morning, and I cry for a help. I hope in your word. The psalmist here was pleading with God, crying out before him. And in his pleading, he didn't plead, first of all, for blessing, first of all, for material things, first of all for daily bread, even though all those things are good things and things that God wants to bring to our lives. If you notice, what he first prayed for is the ability to keep the statutes of God. Did you see that in verse 145? Hear me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. This wasn't merely a cry for deliverance or forgiveness. This was a cry for obedience. I find it fascinating that several times in Psalm 119, the psalmist is dealing with the idea that he has enemies, and God help me with my enemies. They're out to get me. Won't you preserve me? But it's almost as if he looks in this section, he sees that there's another enemy in his life, right? An enemy in each one of our lives. It's himself. It's the one that he looks at in the mirror. And listen, friends, once you realize that that sometimes the greatest struggles you have to deal with in your life, we want to blame it on other people. We want to blame it sometimes on the world or on Satan. But so often it comes back to what? To us having to deal with our own flesh. And so he cries out with this wonderful cry, Hear me, O Lord. I cry out with my whole heart. I will keep your statutes. It's a very basic prayer, isn't it? I'm crying out with my whole heart, God. I don't know how eloquent I am. I don't know how how wordy I am. I don't don't know how beautiful my words sound. But I'm crying out with my whole heart. That makes for a powerful prayer. I read one commentator. He said something beautiful about this. His name was Brooks. And this is what he said. He said, God looks not at the elegancy of our prayers to see how neat they are, nor at the geometry of our prayers to see how long they are, nor at the arithmetic of our prayers to see how many they are, nor yet at the music of our prayers, nor yet at the sweetness of our voice, nor yet at the logic of your prayers, but at the sincerity of our prayers, how hearty they are. Isn't that what the psalmist was saying here? Lord, my heart may be weak, my heart may be failing, 
but with my whole heart, such as it is, I bring it before you, and I cry out before you, as he says here in these verses, I cry out to you, save me, and I will keep your testimonies. Now, now that's something very characteristic of the Psalms. The, the same idea is repeated just for the sake of emphasis. There's really not a whole lot of difference between, hear me, O Lord, and I will keep your statutes, save me, and I will keep your testimonies. He's basically saying the same thing, but the idea in the Psalms is very strong. He repeats it for the sake of emphasis. He passionately cried out to God for the wisdom and the strength and the ability to obey God. And can I tell you, that is always a prayer that will please the Lord. Do do you want to pray in a way that pleases God? Here's a surefire prayer that will please God. God, help me to obey you. Isn't that always going to prevail with God? I mean, don't, don't you think God smiles in heaven when he sees one of his children praying for that? If you're a parent, wouldn't you love it if your child came to you like that? Oh boy, I don't know what I would do as a parent. <laughs> oh father, <laughs> won't you please show me how I can obey you better? <clears throat> First of all, I'd wonder what somebody had done with my children, you know, and who would replace them. But when we cry out this way before God, isn't he delighted? And by the way, when he says here, I cry out in verse 145, that means that the prayer was vocal. Listen, I don't know how your custom of prayer is, but I, I want you to know that in my own private times of prayer, I mostly pray vocally with my voice. I, I won't say all the time. There are times when I just pray within my mind because God hears the prayers that are just in our mind. I, I believe that very strongly. But there's a very strong case to be made for praying vocally. And I don't know about you, but when I pray vocally, it just helps me keep my attention. It helps me to be more serious and more earnest about the words that I say. And so he was crying out with his voice and with his heart before God. Matter of fact, if you want to see how passionately he sought the Lord, we already read it, but look at it again right there in verse 147. He says, I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. The psalmist passionately depended upon God and his word. But, but that didn't eliminate the participation of the psalmist. He still woke early to seek God in prayer, to cry for help. And in this, he was helped by the word of God. I hope in your word. That's an important correlation there, right? Prayer is an important part of Bible study. And I think that many times people who have very difficult time in Bible study, maybe it's because their prayer life along with their Bible study time isn't what it should be. I'm not going to say that's the only reason for a difficult time in Bible study, but sometimes that's certainly one of them. You you see, we use prayer in our study of the Word of God. But, But I would say this, we also use the Word of God in our prayers. You see, in prayer, the word of God shows us, it shows us the nature and the heart of the God that we pray to. When we pray in light of the word of God, it shows us what we've received from God and what we should thank him for. When we pray in light of the word of God, it shows us his greatness. It informs our praise and it expands our praise. It shows us the moral will of God. It directs us to pray that we could actually do it. It shows us the promises that he makes to his people and which we claim by faith. And it shows us the substance of our prayers as we sort of pray, read the scriptures. You know what it's like, don't you? Have you ever prayed with somebody 
whose prayers are rich with the word of God. You can tell that they love the word of God because as they pray, now I don't mean this in an ostentatious way. Maybe you've experienced that with somebody who does it in sort of a showy way. I have. It's sort of repulsive, isn't it? <laughs> oh, Lordest, Goddest, who dwelleth in the heavenest, <laughs> we humbly acknowledgeth thouest before thy throneth, you know, on and on and on. And there's there's a, a proud, showy way to do this. But isn't there a beautiful way that comes forth just just wonderfully from the heart of somebody who knows God's word? They just know it. They love it. And when they pray, it's reflected in it. And so this idea of prayer informing our study of the word and then our study of the word informing our prayer, it's a beautiful circle, is it not? Now continuing on, verse 148. He says, my eyes are awake through the night watches, that I may meditate on your word. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. O Lord, revive me according to your justice. This is fascinating. Just in the previous verse, we saw that the psalmist woke up early so that he could seek God. But, but now he tells us that he stayed awake through the night to think about God and his word. Isn't this just after the pattern of Jesus as well? Did not Jesus sometimes pray very early in the morning? Mark chapter 1 verse 35 tells us that he did. Uh, We go again to another passage. Luke chapter 6 verse 12 tells us that on some occasions, Jesus prayed all the way through the night. And why did he do it? So that he could think about God's word. I don't know where your mind rests when you have nothing else to think about. Isn't that sort of a revealing and sometimes frightening thought? What what do you think about when there's nothing else to think about? You know, it's just mind is drifting out there. And it's sort of a measure of who we are and what's important to us, right? When our mind will just set on whatever it is, when we've got nothing else, where will it sort of set? What will be the default position of our mind? I would say we should make it our goal. We should make it our aspiration that our mind would settle on God and his word and to meditate upon him in those things. When it says there in verse 148, that I may meditate upon your word, this is something that I think is often neglected among Christians. They often just don't think deeply and turn over the scriptures in their mind. Maybe you've been guilty of this. I know that I certainly have. Where I found myself reading the Bible in a devotional sense, and really it's just like blah, 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 blah. I'm just not even paying attention hardly. Oh, I'm reading the words, but it's not sinking in. I'm not thinking about it. Now, listen, I will say this. It's better to read even poorly than it is to not read the Bible at all. But it's best of all to read it with thought, with consideration, to turn it over upon your mind. I like how James Montgomery Boyce defined the idea of meditation here. He said, it's like internalizing the Bible's teaching to such an extent that the truth discovered in the Bible become part of how we think. And so that we think differently and function differently as part of the result. Suddenly you find that your mind is thinking biblically. And isn't this exactly what God promised to do? That he would transform us by the renewing of our mind. And one of his chief tools, I'm not going to say it's his only tool, but it's certainly one of his chief tools in the renewing of our mind and the transformation that comes forth from that is his living, active, powerful word. 
I find it interesting as well that he says here in verse 149, Hear my voice according to your loving kindness, O Lord. Revive me according to your justice. The, the psalmist asked for God to hear him according to his goodness and mercy. That, that's loving kindness there in verse 149. But then he also asked God, to revive him according to the justice of God. And both of those things are reasons to come before God with a great deal of confidence. You see, according to the loving kindness of God, we can pray this. We can say, Lord, I know that I don't deserve to be heard by you, yet I believe that you are rich in grace. You're rich in mercy. And so please, according to your generous and your kind love, hear my prayer. Pray according to his loving kindness. Now, I don't know what particular version of the Bible you have in front of you. I teach, of course, from the New King James Version. I don't know what it says there for loving kindness in verse 149. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. But it's a beautiful word. It's a strange word, isn't it? Loving kindness. You know, one of the reasons why it's a strange word is because it's translating an ancient Hebrew word, chesed, which is very difficult to translate. It has the idea of grace. It has the idea of covenant love. It has the idea of a loyal love. It has an idea of this. And I like how almost the, the, the King James Version just made up a word for it, loving kindness. Joining together two things. It's got a lot of love in it. It's got a lot of kindness in it. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about that word loving kindness. He said, loving kindness is one of the sweetest words in our language. Kindness has much in it that is most precious, but loving kindness is doubly dear. It is the cream of kindness. Now, that's a beautiful thing to come before God in verse 149 and say, Lord, hear my voice according to your loving kindness. I know I don't deserve it, but I come to you on the basis of your mercy. But then he says something really radical at the end of verse 149. Oh, Lord, revive me according to your justice. Now, this is something that I would only feel comfortable praying as part of the new covenant. Because I don't find a lot of confidence before the justice of God. I don't like coming before God and saying this, Oh, Lord, give me what I deserve. No, thank you. Can we get back to the loving kindness thing? But no, listen. It makes perfect and complete sense, especially in light of the new covenant. Because according to your justice, we can pray this. Lord, I know that my sins are righteously forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. And I know that you have forgiven me according to your justice. And as one so forgiven, I pray. And I also know that according to your justice, you see the righteousness of my cause with those who are against me. Because of these things, please bring me new life. And that's what he says. Listen, friends, when you pray according to God's justice... Pray in view of the cross. Look at the cross and see the justice of God perfectly satisfied by what he poured out upon the Son that should have been placed upon you and I. If I could put it to you this way, the justice of God is now our friend. It's not our enemy. Because the justice of God is righteously satisfied in what Jesus did. You no longer have to be afraid of the justice of God because it has been perfectly satisfied by what Jesus did on the cross. 
But notice specifically what he asked for at the end of verse 149. He said, revive me according to your justice. Though revival from God is never deserved, it can be asked for according to the justice of God. Because it can be prayed for on the justice-satisfying work of Jesus. It can also be prayed for with an eye to honoring the justice of God on earth, especially when wickedness abounds. And when there's great evil in the world, the only definitive answer is revival from heaven, is it not? For God to send forth a mighty outpouring of his spirit. Verse 150. They draw near who follow after wickedness. They are far from your law. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. I I love the contrast in these two verses between near and far. First of all, he says, they draw near who follow after wickedness. The 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 psalmist could sense that the wicked who opposed him were coming closer and closer. They were becoming more and more of a threat to him. They're near to me, but they are far from your law, he says in verse 150. You see, the closer they came to the psalmist, they were far from God's word. And then he says, seeing an even better contrast in verse 150, you are near, O Lord. You see, though the wicked were both near to the psalmist and far from God's word, the psalmist himself knew that God was near. He had come near to the psalmist, and one of the ways he had done that was to come through the word of God itself. Now, I want you to know this, that you can know that God is near to you even when wicked people or enemies or opposers are near to you as well. Even when trouble is near, God can be near. I don't want us to ever fall for that delusion that sometimes infects us in the Christian life that says this, if you're really walking with God, then everything's going to be easy in your life. What a delusion that is, isn't it? Oh, my friend, sometimes Jesus will guide you right into the midst of a storm, not, not to punish you. No, no, all the punishment you ever deserved, I, I'm speaking to those of you, you are believers, you're born again by the Spirit of God, but all the punishment that you ever deserved, it was poured out upon Jesus, but, but for your good, for your training, for your, for your discipline, for your correction, sometimes the Spirit of God will bring you into a very difficult place, not so that God can abandon you there, but so that you can know his nearness like you've never known it before. You see, notice what he says. Even though he felt like the enemies were very close, in verse 151, he says, You are near, O Lord. That's one thing you know. I know you're near, God. But then he also said, And your commandments. No, I'll take it back. And all your commandments are truth. See, friends, even with the enemies, the opposition, the the, the trouble very near to him, he could know that he knew that he knew that God was very close and that the truth of God was there. Because God came near to the psalmist, he could see all the more clearly that all the commandments of God were true. He understood that God's word was truly inspired and infallible. And so that's why he closes with such a triumphant place in this little section right at verse 152 where he says, Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you founded them forever. I love the idea that the psalmist had an old relationship with God. I have known of old. Now, some of you may wish you had that. 
Some of you may think, wow, you know, I've only been a Christian for a few years. I've only really been thinking about God's word for a few years. And I look at those who have had an old relationship with God's word, and I wish I had that. Well, let me tell you, stay in God's word over a long period of time, and you'll get it. You'll be able to say, I have known of old that you founded them forever. The psalmist had an old relationship with the word of God. The the great love, the great appreciation he had with the scriptures. It wasn't a youthful surge of infatuation. Now that's beautiful. The youthful surge of infatuation. That's a glorious thing. It's not to be depreciated. And you'll love it with a young believer just so in love with the word of God. But listen, there's something that grows in the relationship between a man and a woman, or at least it should grow, that their love deepens and intensifies and becomes more real and more beautiful through the years. That's how it was with the word of God in the psalmist. This was the deep, settled love that roots had made deep through time. Matter of fact, he says in verse 152, I know of old that you have founded them forever. You see, his love and appreciation for the scriptures led him to understand that they were eternal. The more he studied and the more he meditated upon them, the more he understood their divine origin. And so it's a beautiful prayer, isn't it? I understand, Lord. The more I see your word, the more I fall in love with it, the more I see how eternally glorious it is and that your word is true. You know, I I think about it sometimes, about how we read this and how it nourishes my soul. I I trust for you as well that I just feed upon these words. There's something so deeply soul-satisfying about considering these wonderful uh, uh, meditations upon the Word of God from Psalm 119. And I think how strange it might seem to an observer who came here among us. You know, someone who had no familiarity with the Bible or with the things of God. And they would come and they would scratch their head. This is crazy. This is an old book. And they, they, they seem to almost be worshiping this book. And we'd be careful to say, we don't worship the book, but we certainly worship the God who gave it to us. And we would say, we love this book. We are because it reveals to us that God. I mean, we, we would say, look, this isn't unlike, it's completely unlike any other piece of ancient literature. We're not talking about the, the, the Odyssey or the Iliad here. We're not talking about Caesar's Gaelic Wars or something like that. We're talking about something that so far surpasses that. And I wouldn't mind it if, if, if some skeptical person came around and said, but it seems so strange. I mean, aren't, aren't these just the writings of a bunch of Bedouins who lived thousands of years ago? It's not informed by modern science or or the great philosophers of the Enlightenment and all that. How can this be true? How can it be so great? One line of thought I would take with such people is just to simply challenge them. And simply to say, how come nobody's written anything better than this? I mean, think of it. There's, you know, Dr. Professor so-and-so with a million letters behind his name. Mister, you're way smarter than a Bedouin shepherd. You're a lot smarter than a Galilean fisherman. It should be super easy for you to write something better than the Bible. So just do it. Matter of fact, you'd make a lot of money, right? Because this is a perennial bestseller. All you got to do is write something better than the Bible. 
you're way smarter than these guys. You're informed by so much more philosophy. So much more has happened. I mean, man, you could do it. You're smart enough. And then you realize what a ridiculous sort of invitation that is, right? Because this book stands alone. It is, as it says, verse 152, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. And we appreciate the knowledge of man. We thank God for scientists who research. We thank, you, thank God for the, the, the challenges of men and women who step forth and research and investigate and all of that. But at the end of the day, we realize there's something very, very special about this book. That he has founded this forever. And we receive it. And we let it guide our prayers. And we let our prayers help us to understand it. We rejoice in the Lord for that. And Father, that is our prayer. We do, Lord. We, we can't help but receive these things with such a happy heart. Because there is, Lord, there's a nourishing. As, as a child would, would nourish itself at, the, uh, at the, the, the mother, Lord, we want to nourish ourselves at your word. As Peter said, drinking the sincere milk of the word. So we thank you for it, Lord. And I, I pray in particular for those this evening, Lord, they're hurting. Those this evening, Lord, they're distracted by, by difficulty in their life. Lord, won't you come close to them? Come close to them, Jesus, and, and through your word and in your word. Give them hope. Give them confidence. Show them that you are near, even as the psalmist himself experienced it. Guide our hearts, our meditations right now to worship you, informed by your word. In Jesus' name.